Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides to this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, and me, Jacob Siegel, the knocker off of tall hats. May you continue to be a person. We're joined today by Gerwinder Bogal, a British writer. He writes a substack called The Prism. Interesting, talented writer who I first encountered on Twitter, actually, when he put out a long tweet thread last year, which contained, in addition to a number of other observations and insights, a tweet about Poe's Law, which is our, our subject, our manifesto today. And it's the first time we've ever done a, a maxim as a manifesto. Poe's Law actually comes from a 2005 comment left on an internet message board that then became kind of infamous or uh, legendary, as it were, as a statement about the nature of meaning on the internet. And it was left by a commenter named Nathan Poe in a uh, ChristianForums.com board. And Poe wrote, quote, Without a winking smiley or other blatant display of humor, it is utterly impossible to parody a creationist in such a way that someone won't mistake for the genuine article, end quote. So you can see that as a, a statement about creationism, but it's really better understood as a, an expression of something underlying the nature of meaning on the internet, which is that the the normal markers, the normal boundaries between the parodic and the serious, or for that matter, between the sacred and the profane that exist in the physical world, break down in the digital world. And it becomes nearly impossible to say whether any statement that defies the strict techno-rationalist premises of the internet, any statement of fundamentalist belief that is, is being made seriously or satirically. And it's entirely possible that the people making the statements aren't sure themselves without the handy emoji to let them know what they themselves are feeling. So we get into that. In the course of getting into that, we also end up talking about disinformation, which has very much been on my mind lately and is also the subject of a recent piece that Gerwinder wrote for his substack, and so was on his mind as well. I think we had a, a really rich, interesting conversation about that, which then segued into a discussion of a Philip K. Dick story, Faith of Our Fathers, that Phil picked, and which I had never read before, so I was excited to get to read that and talk about that. I felt uh, like there wasn't much uh, PKD left that I hadn't read, but I guess there are still some short stories out there. And this is a an interesting and strange and horrifying one, frankly, very Lovecraftian. It's Dick moving into his full Gnostic phase, uh, but it has a, a kind of bleak Lovecraftian horror that's hard to shake, frankly. So we talked about that. We tried to figure out what the hell these things have to do with each other. And I think we had a really interesting conversation. Finally, a word to note the manifesto is now sponsored by Fairfield University, a Jesuit university in Fairfield, Connecticut. Fairfield's mission is to develop the creative, intellectual potential of students and to foster in them ethical and religious values and a sense of social responsibility. 
Phil also teaches at Fairfield in both their undergraduate English department and their Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing program. And we're very pleased to be associated with Fairfield and thank them for the sponsorship. With that, let's join the conversation. Gerwinder, we are very happy to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So before we get into our discussion of Poe's Law and uh, then later Philip K. Dick's short story, Faith of Our Fathers, you know, you and I have both written about disinformation. Um, we've both talked about uh, The Imp of the Perverse, the great Edgar Allan Poe story. This is a, uh, a podcast for um, Poe devotees. And so I'm curious, you know, you're a writer, you have your Substack, The Prism, which I advise people to check out, um, but you also clearly are interested in tech. What is your background in tech or, or is it just an intellectual interest? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so my educational background is in computer science. Um, it's basically what I did my degree in and I worked in tech for a few years. Um, the most high profile thing I did was... Um, I worked on Microsoft's search engine Bing. Um, it wasn't a senior role. It was just a kind of, you know, mid-level kind of role. And um, the reason I went into tech was because I wanted to, I, I was basically a tech utopian. You know, I believed that uh, the internet was going to just sort of destroy ignorance, basically, and just sort of give everybody instant information so that nobody would, you know, not have the right information anymore. Everybody would know exactly what what was correct. It was this kind of weird sort of tech utopianism that I kind of grew up on. Like, because I was a big fan of Star Trek and stuff when I was a kid, you know. Um, but when I actually got into tech and I actually began working um, on search engines, I realized that um, you could give people the right information, but the real obstacle was would they actually want it? Uh, because what we realized was that if you actually give people the most authoritative information, so you know, peer-reviewed academic studies, um, you know, quality journalism, uh, people would usually skip it and they would instead choose the clickbait, the gossip, uh, you know, the low-grade, hyper-partisan stuff. And that was a big eye-opener for me. And I realized that the work I was doing at, in tech was basically at a hard limit to how much I could actually improve uh, sort of human uh the human mind as it were because the main problem wasn't the tech it wasn't the algorithms the main problem was human desires mirror data makes a man a and c and tmg the alphabet of you all from four symbols i'm only two one and zero half as much but as elegant, sweetheart. And so that was the sort of cue for me to leave tech. And I began sort of becoming more interested in psychology. So I began to write, um, obviously, because I was a computer scientist, I didn't have any background in writing or in psychology. So not many people were going to take me seriously. So I decided to do something drastic, which was um, there was a lot of talk in, in the town of Luton in England around 2009. I don't know if you've heard of Tommy Robinson. Sure, uh, sure. The EDL. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. In English yeah, Defense so League for people who don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So basically this uh, organization was founded in Luton in, I think, two, 2009. 
And it was a backlash against what was perceived as a growing problem of Islamic extremism. And all of this was being blamed on the internet at the time. It was being blamed on um, Facebook because Tommy Robinson had a massive Facebook account and that was where he... To be clear, you're saying not that the Islamic extremism was being blamed on the internet, but that the growth of Tommy Robinson and the EDL was being blamed on the internet. Both were. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. So this was... uh, because obviously, because in Luton, you had one of the strongholds of the most dangerous Islamic group in, in the United Kingdom, al Mahajarun, And uh, this is the group that was sort of, they played a part in the 7-7 bombings. Um, they, were, well, they, they were linked, anyway, they're linked to the 7-7 bombings. And they're also linked to a lot of other um, supposed, uh, well, attempted attacks, basically. Not all of them were successful. In fact, only a small proportion were successful. But they tried they tried their best to to harm the country and um so there was this conflict going on between the edl and the and al mahajirun and because it was being blamed on the internet i became quite interested in it because i i was convinced because of my work in tech that problem wasn't the algorithm so i decided to actually go right into the center of this battle that was going on in burry park the neighborhood of burry park in luton and i spent a couple of years there um sort of I was kind of like a kind of David Attenborough kind of guy, you know, just kind of monitoring them and, you know, like <laughs> as though they were kind of animals in the wild and uh, observing. And uh, I went undercover at a couple of mosques and uh, I basically, I sort of carried out some research, basically. I uh, I did, you know, uh, wrote like a 30,000 word um, article about what was going on there. And um, yeah, I, I basically found my, my, new suspicions confirmed basically tech wasn't the problem the problem was um, that these people had that they had basically had uh, misaligned desires basically from everybody so, yeah i mean this is this is fascinating and a perfect segment I, I didn't know that about your background that's really interesting and i i will um look out for the that thirty thousand word piece that you wrote about this um but i think that before we get into post law, which we'll do in a second, it's worth noting that you are an outlier insofar as having observed this misalignment, let's say between human desire and uh, tech optimization, search engine optimization, your immediate response was not, ah, we'll use the tech to re-engineer human desire, which does seem to be the uh, not hyperbolic, but literally prevailing sentiment among the sorts of people who were in your position and who observed this kind of misalignment, the, I would say, consensus sort of status quo answer, this, the, the technocratic default answer is uh, this misalignment can be fixed. And the way to fix the misalignment is by using the perceived or nominal power of the platforms as a vehicle for um, re-engineering human desire to bring it in line with whatever sense of epistemological and moral hygiene is holding among the, the technocrats. So with that, Poe's Law, I think, is the first manifesto. I mean, we've really stretched the definition (laughs) of manifesto to its limits. But I think this is the first one we've ever done that is really just an adage. You know, it's just a a maxim or an adage. Um, And 
it relates to this, uh, what you were observing in the sort of extremism and counter extremism of the EDL and these Islamist groups quite directly insofar as um, the claim of Poe's law is that online it is impossible to distinguish between a straightforward statement of fundamentalist belief and a parody of fundamentalist belief. And I've been fascinated by this for a long time, and I've long felt that it captured something essential about kind of digital epistemology. And as I was thinking about it over the last day, you know, it occurred to me that it's it's actually making a claim both about the internet and about human beings and about beliefs. So it's it's mirroring what you're describing with let's, the the yeah. Let's give a couple of examples. I think yeah. uh, so. I I just pulled out a sort of a couple more prominent ones. Um, ones from the left, ones from the right. It doesn't really matter, right? Um, so Barbara <clears throat> Ehrenreich had like offended somebody by making a joke about Marie Kondo. I don't know what it was. And she had tweeted, you know, sorry if I offended anybody by my tweet about Marie Kondo. Sometimes my attempts at subtle humor just don't work. And this um, person responded, you did a racism. You did an imperialism. You did a nationalism. You did a xenophobia. You did a white fragility. You did a weak apology. You did no growth. This makes it abundantly clear you don't even understand the intersectional nature of the multiplicity of your offenses. Which immediately became a meme, right? Like a joke meme, even, you know, among people on the left, it's so over the top, but it seems to have been meant entirely in earnest. And then there's no way that was meant entirely in earnest. Is that possible? I, it seems to have been meant in earnest. Okay. <laughs> and, um, the other one, uh, was more recently when, when, when Trump was about to be arrested, Joseph D McBride Esquire, tweeted, <laughs> President Trump will be arrested during Lent, a time of suffering and purification for the followers of Jesus Christ. As Christ was crucified and then rose again on the third day, so too will Donald Trump. Violence is never the answer. Winning the election is vote for Trump. Jesus loves Donald Trump. Jesus died for Donald Trump. Jesus lives inside Donald Trump. Deal with it. I, I have an easier time. The the second one, the Trump-Christ one, it seems more authentic to me. Like the locution <laughs> of the you did a racism, you did an imperialism seems to tip its hand towards parody in a way that the like uh, Christ died for Trump one. I, it just seems easier to take straightforwardly. But certainly – Certainly, the fact that we're arguing about this attests to the central it, 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 claim. example. Yeah, you don't know. I, by the way, I did think about it because this is talked about as a purely internet thing. Um, I did think of one example of a pre-digital. Um, this is there's a Marilyn Robinson short story called "A Friend of My Youth," which is a brilliant story. But uh, one of the threads is these this these people are a member of, of a church called the Cameronians, which. Throughout the whole story, you don't know what that is. And then at the very end, Robinson writes, The Cameronians, I have discovered, 
are or were an uncompromising remnant of the Covenanters, those scops who in the 17th century bound themselves with God to resist prayer books, bishops, any taint of popery or interference by the king. Their name comes from Richard Cameron, an outlawed or field preacher soon cut down. The Cameronians for a long t- uh, the Cameronians, for a long time they have preferred to be called the Reformed Presbyterians, went into battle singing the 74th and 78th Psalms. They hacked the haughty Bishop of St. Andrews to death on the highway and rode their horses over his body. One of their ministers, in a mood of firm rejoicing at his own hanging, excommunicated all the other preachers in the world. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure that's the same thing. It's not, but the... Uh, the minister in a mood of firm rejoicing at his own hanging, excommunicating all the other preachers in the world. That could be, uh, that struck me as something that both, while it's a sort of historical event that happened, could also appear in like a satire by Voltaire, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah. I um, wrote a tweet about Poe's actually, uh, last year. And um, I'll read the tweet to you, actually. So the tweet is basically this. So it's, it's now impossible to distinguish trolling from sincerity online, partly because ship posts have become so lifelike and partly because life has become so ship post like. And I think the reason I wanted to read that out to you is because I think it captures something important about Poe's law, which is that it's, it's really two problems. It's not, it's not a single problem, um, but the extent to which each of these problems um, affects Poe's law is actually de- debatable, but so, so on the one hand, you know, you've got the fact that sarcasm and memes have become more sophisticated and, you know, irony has become more sophisticated as people have practiced it online. Uh, but then on the other hand, we've, the internet has kind of created this kind of world where crazy events are reported more often. And so the world actually seems like it's more shitpost, like, more like a shitpost. Because, you know, you've got all the crazy, all because of selection effects on social media, all of the crazy stuff gets more attention than the not so crazy stuff, which makes it much harder to distinguish trolling from sincerity because the world seems like it's trolling almost. So for I think, people, yeah, for people who spend a lot of time online, right? Yeah, yeah. I think Poe's Law is, is really a law for people who spend most of their time online. I don't think that it really affects people who use the internet casually. But to be honest, I don't think there are many people who use the internet right. I mean, this, who care, care about such things. Well, this so, is yeah. just becoming a, this distinction between people who use the internet casually and, and people who are like, th- there. there is this attempt at a sociological uh, taxonomy in which there is the very online and then there are like the normies out in the real world. We're just talking about stages, you know. It's it's all moving in one direction. There was a the the mass migration during COVID and during lockdowns is not in any immediate sense reversible. Like the mass migration online, which is a migration driven by top down, uh, you know state and corporate made decisions on the one hand and by underlying conditions of political economy on the other hand, isn't something you can just simply opt in or out of. So of course there are the people who are, we all recognize them who spend too much time on Twitter, who are sort of 
the most extreme examples of this, but in the same way that, you know, like fringe ideological um, pursuits have a way of getting normalized quite quickly, these characteristics of very online discourse have a way of sort of touching everything. And I think, you know, I, I thank you for bringing that up, Gerwinder, your, your tweet, which was why I thought to invite you in the first place. It seems uh, probably the hosts uh, maybe should have mentioned that, but um, you picked up the slack. Thank you. I think, you know, that gets at the essential thing, which is that you, there is a an environmental change which has shifted. I think of it as like you've lost the vanishing point in traditional paintings. You have a vanishing point, which gives a kind of orderly perspective. And that vanishing point, just to put this in the crudest possible terms, you might think of as the sacred, right? And that vanishing in, in terms of human belief and the ordering of what is serious, what is trivial, what is sacred, what is profane, you have the sacred as the vanishing point, uh, the transcendent, let's say, the horizon, the transcendent of the horizon, and it orders all human belief in a kind of recognizable, perspectival uh, arrangement. And the digital just obliterates that. It obliterates that. Everything is leveled. There is no longer a vanishing point. There's some kind of unfathomable depth of the digital, which at the same time is ultimate shallowness and transience. So it's like infinite depth that has no depth at all, that is just infinitely ephemeral and transient. And, you know, it's the simulation of, of infinite depth, as it were. And, um, and that makes it in a kind of structural, or you might say like a, a perspectival sense, it makes it impossible to maintain these strict delineations between categories of belief. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, what you were describing there um, is known as the meaning crisis. And I think it, it does play a big role in this kind of idea that people can't really know what what's true or not you know as a result of everybody's sort of have, has their own sort of subculture because there's no as you say there's no kind of vanishing point so everybody has their own sort of vanishing point they you know people form these small communities each with its own vanishing point and this fragmentation has made it hard for different communities to communicate with each other uh, because a lot of the kind of symbols that people use um, are alien to one another because they're from different subcultures. Um, you know, there's on Twitter, you can see a good example of this where you have certain groups um, like the post-rap community. I don't know if you know much about them, but they're, they're a group of oh, people. Post-rationalists. Is that yeah, like yeah. less, less yeah, wrong yeah. people? Yeah. 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 Basically. Yeah. Well, they're kind of like, they're kind of like the anti less wrong people now because you've got the, the traditional rationalists who are like the kind of Robin Hanson kind of types. And then you've got these new guys, you know, who um, they're a bit further to the right politically and they're more in interested in memes. They kind of straddle the, the line between rationalism and the alt-right. And um, they have their own language, like where they, they use all these weird sort of words and these we weird memes that nobody else uses. 
And it's kind of like this way for them to identify each other, almost like a shibboleth. And to, to outsiders, you know, it's completely impossible to tell whether what they're saying is, is, is uh, sarcasm or sincere. And this is deliberate because because they have alt-right views, some of them have anyway, they want to um, protect themselves from the people outside of that, that sphere. So they use very strange sort of memes that people can't really decipher unless they're part of that subculture and they actually have a grounding in the sort of traditions of that subculture. Um, and I think this is something that I also noticed when I was um, sort of stalking uh, Al-Muhajroon in Luton, which is that they formed their own language. I actually wrote an article about this um, where they basically, they were afraid of being uh, found out on Twitter and on other places, you know. So what they did was that they started combining Arabic with um, sort of this weird kind of like meme culture that they had developed online. And they would, and obviously they would, they would use English as well and mix that up in there as well, just ordinary English. And they started using weird terms for things. And this actually caught on, for instance, uh, the term for martyrs would be green birds. They would, they would call martyrs green birds. They would sort of call people who, who had gone to join ISIS, they would call them like professionals. And, and, and um, Where did green birds come from? Do you know what's the etymology of that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it comes from a passage in the Hadith in which um, uh, I think it's Bukhari who basically says that uh, when martyrs die, their souls turn into green birds that fly to paradise, mm. basically. And uh, mm. it's a very obscure passage in one of the Hadith. And so not many people, not many people, especially in the sort of intelligence services, would would know about this, which is why they used it. And I mean, there's, you know, many other sort of weird memes that they would use. They would combine sort of pop culture with Arabic and, and very sort of esoteric uh, Islamic eschatology and, you know, all this other stuff and fuse it into this weird sort of meme culture, which made it impossible to know what they were really saying. And oftentimes it would seem like they were being sarcastic when in fact they were being sincere. So they were kind of subverting proposed law there. And you see the same with the alt-right, with the kind of Pepe the Frog, and these kind of memes. I mean, the Pepe the Frog thing is, is that became mainstream, but most of their sort of meme language is actually very, very hard to sort of discern because it's it it, it is kind of sarcastic in a way, but it's the sarcasm is there to sort of disguise a serious point. It's like satire in a way. So they use this kind of satirical uh, view. For instance, I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff that you see online, especially since Elon Musk has taken over. Uh, you've seen a, a resurgence in um, in some pretty sort of far to the right white nationalist people who use you know those use thirteen fifty thirteen fifty uh, or thirteen fifty five kind of meme you know which is just a simple number when you look at it uh, most people wouldn't really know what that meant but then you know you look into the sort of history of the use of it and it becomes clear that they're talking about race and crime and, and things like that and um, this is just one example but one of the things that Poe's law has allowed is it's allowed these subcultures to form in which to outsiders, it seems like people are being sarcastic, but when you're part of the community, it's, there's actually something being communicated, you know, so they disguise their true meanings behind sarcasm. Yeah. But I, I, I think that's all true. I wonder about the extent to which this is intentional and, um, 
I, I wrote a, an essay in, I think it was 2015. It was a long time ago now on Dylan Roof, who was the white nationalist mass shooter and who had spent time on a website called the Daily Stormer, which was itself influenced by Fortune. And I, I wrote a piece explicitly about this, about um, the alt-right's use of trolling. I don't even think people were using the term alt-right at the time when I wrote the piece, though um, I was aware of it. But it was all about that. It was about 4chan and about the poll board in, in particular. And one of the things that I observed and that I still think holds is that there can be an overestimation of the extent to which this is a deliberate strategy. Trolling is a deliberate strategy. There may be a very small number of people, Andrew Anglin at the Daily Stormer, the sort of theorists of the far right who are interested in weaponized memes and trolling as a strategy. But for most people, this is a process of socialization. They use these memes in order to touch things that they're afraid to touch and, you know, through sort of exposure, repeated exposure, to have fun with these things that are off limits, that are taboos, racial epithets, uh, you know, jokes about gas chambers and gassing Jews. You know, they, the, the trolling is in many ways just a, a sort of a way of interacting with these things that are titillating and thrilling and dangerous and the that what you were talking about with that very esoteric message board language that you see like with a group, you know, with a jihadist group, yeah, of course that can be, you know, intentionally deployed to wall it off from security services. And to some extent that's happening even with um, people on poll who want to, you know, shield some of what they're saying, but they're anonymous, of course. Um, and for them, I think that, that production of that language, the production of that opaque, esoteric language is also part of the generation of a environment in which they can play with these things. It all sort of goes together. It's like boys in a clubhouse. You know, you sort of, you invent your own language yeah. and through the invention of that language, you form your own particular social world that is walled off from the outside social world and therefore can have a different set of rules. And the nature of the humor just reflects the concerns. There's an interesting book by Kathleen Stoker about humor in occupied Norway <clears throat> during World War II. And she notes that like jokes about the Nazis in, in occupied Norway tended to be about like fascists and, and the absurdity of the Nazis and whatever. But <clears throat> in, in Denmark, a lot of the jokes had to deal with uh, a decent number of the jokes had to deal with the Nazis and anti-Semitism, right? And which you didn't find so much in Norwegian occupation humor. And Stoker notes that this this concern translated into heroic actions that saved a record seven seventy two hundred of Denmark's eight thousand Jews from Nazi capture. While in Norway, whose occupation humor makes no mention of their plight, a tragically high fifty percent of the Jewish population never returned from captivity. But a country jokes about it also takes most seriously. And so, yeah, it's, it's a way of touching things without taking responsibility for them while sort of forming a community around the in-group. The other thing I think that's, that sort of 
present if we're specifically talking about Poe's law, because Poe's law is often what happens when other people are observing like the things that this insider community is, is, is saying because like context is so important in the, um, in the bit that I mentioned about the Cameronians, right? Like if the description of that minister in a mood of firm rejoicing at his own hanging was written by Voltaire, you would know how to read it one way. Yeah. Right. You know, if it's written by Marilyn Robinson, it's still, it's still humorous, but it's, it's in a, in a different register. Right. And, um, one of the things that is sort of constantly going on is, you know, Jake, you were talking about how the internet is just like flat field, right? But at the same time, there are like all these little like cul-de-sacs that people get in where their opinions are being sort of formed. I, when I was thinking about this, I thought of, you know, the Conrad story in Outpost of Pog Progress? Uh, not off the top right. of my head. There's, there's a... Don't go, but there's a bit in it where <clears throat> he's talking about these these two guys. It's sort of like a uh, him spooling up for Heart of Darkness. Few men realize that their life, the very essence of their character, their capabilities, and their audacities are only the expression of their belief in the safety of their surroundings. The courage, the composure, the confidence, the emotions and principles, every great and every insignificant thought belongs not to the individual but to the crowd, to the crowd that believes blindly in the irresistible force of its institutions and of its morals, in the power of the police and of its opinion. And people get in these communities where these like sort of increasingly arcane shibboleths get developed. But then uh, at, at, at a certain point, somebody uh, sort of expresses those and it, it becomes exposed to a broader audience to whom it feels utterly absurd, right? Um, like the, assuming it was meant in earnest, you did a racism, you did an imperialism hmm. uh, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the degree to which the like the distinctions between categories of meaning are socially mediated is just brought into stark relief by this, right? It's you think, ah, this is a statement of the absolute. This is a statement. Mm -hmm. What could be easier to identify than a statement of grave seriousness on the one hand, and a, and a statement of sort of um, mockery and, and irreverence on the other, but those are all, they, they all take on their meaning only through uh, a shared social arrangement that the internet, it's, it just, yeah, okay, it exists within these cul-de-sacs and is sort of recreated through these arcane shibboleths, but it doesn't exist um, across the culture any anymore. Right. The other thing that you see <clears throat> is people using the same phrase in response to, um, you know, a news event or or something. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes you have things that are obviously coordinated. The New York Times, Tom Cotton op-ed, you know, all these journalists going, this op-ed is going to get black journalists killed or whatever was the phrase. They're they're writing the same thing in Twitter yeah. over and over again. But sometimes that happens, and that was obviously coordinated, but sometimes that happens without coordination, right? Or more often. More yeah. often it happens without coordination. Right. Um, so when Matt Taibbi came out with the Twitter files – I forget the exact line of attack, but it was basically doing like, the PR for the world's richest man. Yeah. You're doing PR <laughs> for the world's richest man, right? 
Um, yeah. And so you'd see you're doing PR for the world's richest man over and over and over again. And look, it's perfectly fine looking at the Twitter files to say Elon Musk released these for a reason and it is worthwhile thinking about what his reason is. It's another thing to mindlessly recite this without, by the way, saying you're doing PR for the world's richest man doesn't actually explain your theory of the case of why he's doing it, which we should be aware of. It's merely a way of dismissing the material, right? Which, you know, is, is no longer becomes under discussion. You just get this like avalanche of the same phrase reiterated over and over again, which has no actual genuine intellectual content. Yeah. I mean, just uh, to bring up a point from our last conversation, this is what I mean when I talk about, digital swarms as a new uh, mode of social formation that is distinct from, let's say, distinct even from the spectacles of mass movements in the 20th century, this instant adoption of instant unthinking adoption of cliche and slogan as a um, you know, it, it resembles what you might have had in the in the 20th century with these um, party mandates being passed out. It, it looks similar, but the digital swarm is different insofar as it's decentralized for the most part. The, the Tom Cotton thing was the clear exception. Something like the Taibi response, I think, is much more representative. And it's a, a form of non-thinking. You know, like yeah. all cliches are non-thinking in a sense, right? Like this is what's useful about cliches. It's difficult to think. It's tiring to think. It's much, you know, and so now you have this distributed and uh, Gerwin, I, I, I'm sure you understand the kind of engineering side of this better than Phil and I. I'd be interested in, in how you see that operating, but it seems to me that there is a algorithmic infrastructure um, that, you know, digital networking basically at, at its core has created this sort of um, shared uh, mental uh, circuitry. You know, I, I, I'm trying to resist being too overstated about it, but it does seem to be there. Yeah. Um I think one of the sort of key foundations of the internet is social proof. Yeah. This idea that, you know, uh, if everybody else is doing something, then it seems like the thing that you should do as well, you know. And ne because the internet is, is networked, this makes social proof extremely easy and extremely, uh, an extremely powerful force. Um, like, for instance, if you, you know, if you have social media and then you have everybody around you who's saying a certain thing, it just becomes so tempting just to assume that they're saying it because it's true, not because there's some kind of social contagion. It, it becomes your new reality. And everything that you see um, on social media is sort of engineered to make that possible. Um, you know, when you, when you go onto Twitter and you can usually see uh, what some, you see who that person is followed by. And that's a way for the internet to show you, or at least social media, to show you that this person, um, it, like other people that you care about, cares what this person thinks. Therefore, you should care what this person thinks. And so it, it sort of creates these kind of networks where, you know, you have 
uh, everybody who is following somebody else is then directed to follow the, the people that that person is is following and so on and it creates this kind these kind of like-minded i mean you could call them echo chambers really but they're not they're not just echo chambers they're kind of they're these sort of pockets where uh, certain social contagions can can rapidly uh, expand because everybody in those groups are of a similar kind of uh, subculture you know so i mean probably you just call it a subculture i guess it, it creates subcultures very very easily and that's what social media is so good at doing because it gets people who are like-minded together from all over the world and that's i mean if you look at it it's very different from the 20th century in the 20th century you, you had sort of these centralized organizations like the chinese communist party who would try to pull pull people together even if those people had different temperaments it, their, their individual similarities didn't actually matter they were forced to be similar regardless of their background their experiences all of these things they were just sort of pushed into this cookie cutter kind of uh, system whereas now it's much more powerful force because you can actually get people who are intrinsically similar and yeah. pull them together into these subcultures so that's it, it very, makes this social proof much more of a powerful force that's very astute so just like one quick question on that what in terms of the incentives for the internet companies because if i understand you correctly they're engineering it this way for a reason why do they want that uh, you know not to impute like motive but that is it because it increases engagement which uh, is more profit is that the reason yeah they look uh, tech giants want what ordinary people want basically so they they create algorithms to fulfill human desires uh people want to be connected to people that are like them and so algorithms make that happen people mm. want to see information that confirms what they already believe so algorithms make it happen you know algorithms are like the genie that just grants wishes to the user basically it just whatever you want the algorithm is there to make that happen and that's why they're so dangerous because they're so seductive so you know because uh, we're thinking about this and in some ways like the concerns the concerns with social media like it reminded me of the concerns around the printing press, right? Like um, in the Fairy Queen, the the knight encounters the monster error, right? Uh, her vomit full of books and papers was with loathly frogs and toads, which eyes did lack and creeping sought way in the weedy grass, her filthy power break all the place defiled has. Um, but it's that like, it's like the printing press, but you get the pamphlet and you don't quite like it. <laughs> And are able to just sort of rapidly go through, you know, to 15 more pamphlets until you find the one that is perfectly calibrated towards towards you. Um, and, you know, immediately who in your social circle has already liked that. I don't know. I mean, I think that you're absolutely right. It's like the printing press in the sense that it's a consciousness reforming technology. And there are very powerful technologies that are not touching on consciousness and social organization you know rockets are supremely powerful you know nuclear reactors are supremely powerful they don't intrinsically touch on human consciousness the printing press did and you know this is a classic marshall McLuhan understanding media and, and understanding media specifically as the extension of of 
certain the extensions of man, as he says in the title, meaning that all media, all media technologies take something intrinsic to the human and exaggerate it. And they exaggerate one thing or they amplify one thing while inhibiting other characteristics of the human one no more or less fundamental than the other um, those characteristics the printing press even while it allowed people to be sort of self-sorting through pamphlets in the manner that you're describing also promoted a kind of explosion of the individual consciousness and the individual ego as one engaged with these pamphlets through text, through the symbolic reasoning of text. The internet and that kind of social self-sorting that Gerwinder was describing seems to me to, um, to, to sort of inhibit the individualistic reasoning, the individualistic ego that the printing press encouraged, which then sort of culminated in, you know, nationalist mythologies. And, you know, nationalism was uh, modern nationalism, that is not um, Abrahamic nationalism, but modern nationalism was really a, a product of the printing press, which allowed for these. Phil, you always have that great quote you read. I forget who it's from about like books as sort of communities of belief. Do you know the one I'm talking about? It's um, who is it? Books are thick letters to friends. Is that the one? That's that's the one. Yeah, yeah. books John are Paul. thick letters. To <clears throat> Romantic novelist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Books are thick letters to friends, and I, you build the, those thick letters to friends. Build into ah, and and the next line, by the way, is letters are um, thin books to the world. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, so the maybe, internet maybe even more appropriate in in yeah. Uh, the internet is not about thick letters to friends. Let us say the internet is about digital networking is something else. It's a, um, it's not friends. It's a sort of hive or bot organization. And um, I don't say that to, to be, you know, exulting in the glories of the printing press and, and being um, suggest that the internet is in inherently dystopian. It's just it, though I realize that, <laughs> that I do feel a bit that, you know, naturally just because it's what I grew up with and it's the mythologies that I'm steeped in. I do feel some of that. I can't deny a certain sentimental view of these things, but it's just to say that the method of, belief and the method of social organization built around that belief. It's just, it's different than it is far less invested in individualistic reasoning. Part of this is, of course, also related to how people use it, right? So, you know, we're focusing on the negative. It's, Ryan Ruby just uh, put out a lecture he gave on on modern criticism because he thinks there's, there's, we're living in a golden age of criticism, right? There's a lot of really good literary criticism happening. And one of the things that he talks about as being useful is actually Twitter, right? Though much blind and he's not countering any of the bad things that people say about it. 
But he says it's helped level out certain geographic disparities in industries, which are still largely centered out of New York and London, diminishing the value of in-person net network, opening the available talent pool to critics based elsewhere. He's not in New York or London. Twitter is worth remembering is not simply a virtual public sphere where critics can go to network with editors, writers, and publishers, glean information, promote the work, and build an audience for it among a user base that dwarfs that of print media. It is also a publishing platform in its own right where they can engage in criticism directly via micro genres such as the blurb, the take, the thread, and the reply, making it a parasocial split space where critics can interact with each other and with their respective overlapping audiences. And, you know, like I encountered Ryan Ruby, who I think is a brilliant critic through Twitter. We had him on the podcast for a Patreon and his phenomenal piece on Elliot and the Wasteland. And actually, you know, we have networked with and, and engaged with a lot of people. Uh, I found I encountered Gerwinder on Twitter. Right. I mean, it's absolutely you're right. And that's absolutely true. And there may be no more powerful technology for identifying talent and identifying interesting, salient information than Twitter. It's unbelievably powerful as a sort of, you know, it's like you have this entire world of information and it's yeah. Twitter is this thing that allows you to select for the strongest or most original signal and everybody's sending out signal and you have this thing that's like, where is the strongest signal? And it's unbelievably powerful. And I think, you know, we've probably had multiple guests on. Oh um, yeah, for sure. Who, who that's how we encountered them. There are people who I, Joey King. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah like Joey Corbin, Corgan, uh, Corbin. Yeah, right. I, I mean, all of these people are people who I know because of Twitter. Um, yeah, I, so I don't know how to hold those things in balance. Somebody, uh, you know, somebody part of this too is like explain like, it to me. Just the kind of chaotic nature of ideas. There's a very funny bit in Robert um, Musil's "The Man Without Qualities," where there's a chapter called "General Stum Tries to Bring Some Order into the Civilian Mind," where. <laughs> Um, there's like this committee that for the, the year of Austria, this big celebration that Austria is doing, they're trying to come up with a great idea that will, you know, put Austria back on the map or, or whatever. And, and it's supposed to be a powerful intellectual, spiritual idea that we're going to organize this thing around. And so there's this salon where all these intellectuals are talking and debating and this general comes in and then realizes like it's totally chaos one person will say one thing the other person will say the exact opposite and so he gets some of his subordinates to try and like map out a battle plan of of ideas and he gives the report to one of the people involved he's like here i have a list i've made up of all the commanders in chief of ideas i.e all the names in recent times that have led sizable battalions of ideas to victory on this other page here, you see the battle order. This one is a strategical plan, and this last one is an attempt to establish depots or ordnance bases from which to move further supplies of ideas up to the front. Now, I'm sure you can see, I've made certain that the drawing shows this clearly, when looking at any set of ideas in action, that it draws its supplies of additional troops and intellectual material not only from its own depots, but also from those of its opponents. You see how it keeps shifting positions and how it suddenly turns unaccountably against its own backup forces. You can see ideas constantly crossing over to the other side and back again, so you will find them now on one line of battle, now in the other. In short, there's no way to draw up a decent plan of communications or line of demarcation or anything else, and the whole thing is, though I can't actually believe what I'm saying, what any one of our commanding officers would be bound to call one hell of a mess. Yeah. And that, I mean, Poe's Law is just that, like, 
<laughs> transmutation from one depot to the other, right? Um, and that's sort of uh, <laughs> inherent in 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 the play of ideas uh, and in their marshalling. And I think like the internet just sort of speeds up that process and intensifies it and shows you the most extreme examples of the other. Well, it also centralizes it, you know, yes. and it, so it, or it creates this, these critical bottlenecks. And, you know, I, I wrote the big piece about disinformation that we've talked about before on here. And, um, Gerwinder just wrote a, a really excellent piece on his Substack, um, the prism called the cure to AI disinformation is more AI disinformation. Yeah. And, you know, I think, um, I'll try and summarize the premise and, and and you tell me if I've missed something. But I think basically your argument is that the there is, a let's say, a proliferation of synthetic information online and um, what has been called disinformation, though I think, you know, that that is a um, deliberately, let's say, we don't porous, need to get into that whole debate again, <laughs> right? A, a deliberately porous term that's been weaponized for political reasons. But your point is that efforts to um, efforts to regulate disinformation, and, and I should say that you're also pointing out that with ChatGPT now being the fastest growing app in history, all of this is about to accelerate. Even more, right? There's going to be an, an even greater explosion now of synthetic information, and and there are also now possibilities for AI counter disinformation tools, which of course the U.S. government has been working on for quite a while. I write about these in my own piece, and there are these new technologies called semantic forensic technologies that are supposed to identify. Uh, at scale, they're supposed to identify disinformation attacks. But your point is that, I'll, and I'll give the shallow read, and then I hope you'll expand on it. Your point is that the this will, A, it's doomed to fail because the people in charge of the regulation will themselves make mistakes about what is true and, and what is disinformation. And is also sort of maybe more fundamentally missing the point about uh, how human beings sort through these things. So what would you add to that? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary. Um, so yeah, I think it's just simply not possible to regulate misinformation anymore. Um, there, there, there are attempts, you know, the European Union's Digital Service Act, right, which is compelling yeah. large online platforms like Google, Instagram, and Twitter to actively remove content deemed to be disinformation or face heavy fines. So this is not just a theoretical thing that you're responding to, but something that's yeah. being put into practice and that many, you know, and Jake has written about uh, the disinformation sort of activities of, the, of our own government as well. Um, so yeah. this is, a, you know, a, a thing that is of practical concern. Yeah, I mean, yeah. To, to Jacob's uh, piece, actually, there's, a, I think, a good point about the politicization of disinformation, which I think I've, I've observed um, in my own experiences as well, which is that really because Western civilization is, is the most sort of liberal civilization in, in history, pretty much. And um, so the sort of all of the sort of apparatus of the liberal establishment is going to be operating within that context. I mentioned fact-checking a moment ago, and in the former president's rambling appearance tonight, he repeated a whole slew of lies, and as Daniel Dale is with us tonight with uh, some of a fact-check. So, Daniel, uh, what did you hear? What did you want to talk about? 
And so as a result of that, when you actually look at what is regarded as disinformation, it tends to pretty much always be stuff that's conservative in nature. You very rarely see uh, left left wing disinformation sort of uh, being made, you know, a big deal out of by the by the establishment. So there is, I think, a very clear political element here. You know, the the organisations that are tasking themselves with policing disinformation are part of this kind of liberal order. Um, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post are the cheerleaders for it, uh, not Fox News, for instance. You know, Fox News doesn't really worry about uh, disinformation. You know, <laughs> it's not really a problem. It's, it seems that disinformation is only disinformation when it's right wing in nature. And so there is that element, which I think is very important. Um, I didn't really talk about that too much because I think Jacob did a great job of that already. Um, but I think there are other reasons why disinformation is, is just not uh, something that you can really do anymore. Firstly, because obviously it's it's become a political endeavour. It's become highly politicised. It's not objective. So that's, that's obviously one of the main things. But then there are other things. For instance, it's simply not possible to regulate the amount of disinformation or misinformation or whatever you want to call it, uh, fake news. There's simply not enough um, manpower or money uh, or time to regulate it anymore. It worked in the 20th century when, when narratives were centralised. It was pretty easy to regulate anything that wasn't um, acceptable, anything that wasn't welcome, any information that wasn't welcome to the state. But you can't do that anymore because everything's distributed. Uh, you know, and you, you, I make this you point in the piece. Sort of laws. Brandolini's law states the amount of energy needed to refute bullshit is an order of magnitude bigger than to produce it. Right? Is there any kind of like thorough debunking of nonsense? It involves actual like reporting, right? Which is hard. And then the Anna Karenina principle suggests that since there are countless ways to be wrong, but only a few ways to be right, those correcting misinformation will accidentally produce misinformation far more often than those promoting misinformation will accidentally pr pr produce truth. Uh, censors often have no more idea of what is true than those they censor, see the lab leak hypothesis. So they are fundamentally unqualified to dictate what the rest of us are allowed to see. Yeah. And I think this, this again goes back to the original thing about um, disinformation being politicized. It's been corrupted because that's the natural way that, that things happen. Um, whenever you have any organization that is tasked with policing truth, that, that organization is going to become subject to social pressures, political pressures, financial pressures, and it's going to become corrupt. It's just, it's just inevitable. It happens with every organization of this kind. Um, and so we, that's why we can't have this centralized approach to policing what's true because every organization that tries to do that is always going to be subject to these pressures. Right. Uh, because as I point out, there are many ways to be wrong, but only a few ways to be right. There are so many, it's like a labyrinth, you know, navigating truth also, is like a labyrinth. It's so easy to get. That is really important, I think. And I, I've seen this in person. A 1996 study found evidence of a third person effect, whereby people overestimate the effect of misinformation on others. This finding was reinforced by a recent series of surveys, which found that those who feared misinformation did so because they overestimated the gullibility of the masses. It isn't difficult to see why this view would be so prevalent among wealthy Ivy League educated intellectuals and policymakers. I was literally at a fancy dinner party where it was like all sorts of fancy people around the table. And there was an Ivy League professor who was talking about like Cambridge Analytica and whatever and how the 2016 this is right after the 2016 election when everybody believed that like a few Russian Facebook ads had like had this huge effect. And this, as you mentioned in the paper, there's no evidence of that. Um, who's basically saying like, 
in the modern digital age, democracy is an outdated, you know, 18th century technology. Um, and that, you know, with the easily manipulatable masses, we, we can't be giving the power of nuclear bombs to somebody who's elected in this fashion. Right. Um, which, uh, greatly annoyed me since I'm an outdated 18th century person, I guess. Um, but that's the underlying idea here. I mean, the flip side of this, um, the flip side of the tendency to believe that others are more susceptible to disinformation than oneself. What, what is it? That's called the third party effect. Is that the name for that? Yeah. Third person yeah, the, effect. Third person effect. The flip side of that is the underlying dogmatic, unquestioned dogmatic faith of the technocrats, the sort of technocratic clerisy, that everything that rises must converge. Like they, they believe there's a single correct answer to every question and that their class of people is the only class that is equipped to provide that answer. And it sounds harsh and derogatory when I put it that way, but I don't mean that as an insult. I mean that as a sociological description of it's okay. You can, you can mean it as an insult. Well, obviously uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean it as both, but let's be clear. I mean, I certainly don't mean it as a compliment, but I don't mean it just as an epithet. You know, I, I think that that is, how these people believe they're like, it's comes back to, you know, John Gray's formulation of the two faces of liberalism. There's the Hobbesian face of liberalism, which is the search for modus vivendi among competing and ultimately irreconcilable belief systems, which is how we end up with Westphalia, for instance. Right. And that's the sort of liberalism as a technology of mediating between uh, look, put very simply, it's liberalism as a technology for preventing another 30 years war, right? right? How, do, how do we prevent the European nations from destroying each other in another cataclysm? Okay, we now have this sort of meta architecture uh, that will mediate between these irreconcilable positions. The other liberalism, though, is the Millsian liberalism which, you know, it's sort of counterintuitive for people who think of Mills only for his belief in free speech and sort of absolutist belief in free speech, which he did hold, but it was a utilitarian belief in free speech insofar as Mills thought that the purpose of having this sort of marketplace of ideas was that the best idea would always win out and you would ascend through that competition And through debate, you would ascend to a single higher truth, which for him was a sort of utilitarian higher truth, but which existed. And and is that's the tradition that has won out among people like your professor friend at the party who they see that they alone can be entrusted to arrive at the correct position on these things. And beneath that is their faith that there is a correct position. You know, I, I, and this, this comes all the way back to Poe's law insofar as for me, one of, this is in some sense also a consequence of the loss of a transcendent horizon, mm-hmm. right? Because for me, those ultimately correct positions only exist on the other side of mortality. Yeah. And, and we can approach them through 
religion and we can approach them through belief, but we are ultimately mortal doing the best we can. Uh, also, you know, with a spark of the divine, but, um, but, but that, that means that we're, you know, we're ultimately muddling our way towards the best solutions that we can come up with in light of what we owe to our creator, let's say. One of the things in, in Gerwinder's article, well, th there's a couple things. So first he noticed people are actually nowhere near as bad at distinguishing misinformation as, as, as folks think, or nowhere near as susceptible to it because they might get misinformation that disagrees with their priors and they're just not going to accept it, right? So yeah, people will go with their priors. It's about human emotion, what people want from things. Um, and then you note that you can vaccinate people against misinformation, right? And these studies where they have people like engage with conspiracy theories and, and sort of figure out how these things are promoted. But the very end, you note that subversion is one of the effective techniques. So uh, how like after the sort of Russian... Uh, being blamed for the the 2016 election, Putin supporters would post things like a man falling off his bicycle with a caption reading, Russians did it. Eventually, Russians did it became a meme, at which point accusing the Russians of being behind any plot um, uh, made you look worse than wrong. It made you look cliched. And so what in internet culture is often winning out. And I think this is why this goes back to that. You did a racism, you did an imperialism. The thing becomes ridiculous. Well, I mean, the thing becomes refuted, not when it is intellectually defeated, but when it becomes ridiculous. And that's mm -hmm. a very different response. Yeah. I think because of the way that internet discourse happens now, um, trying to refute something or even, you know, trying to censor something just doesn't seem to work anymore. It's not um, something that, because people will always try to impute certain motives to you. And so if you try to refute something, people will see you as an agent of uh, that particular point of view that you're, you know, that you're, you're arguing for, that you're advocating for instead. Which um, team are so, you on? You know, yeah, which team are you on? That's the way that people tend to look at things now. And this happens even in sort of like kind of supposed reasonable debates where, you know, you have two people presenting the evidence, their evidence for a certain thing. Um, in, in the past, what would happen maybe in some cases would be that two people would weigh up their relative evidence for their own beliefs and the one that had the most evidence would win out. But that doesn't happen anymore. Now you've got so many different sources of information that pretty much anybody can find evidence to support their beliefs. Uh, you know, if you, like I've, I've just seen this happen so many times now where somebody will say a certain thing and they'll, they'll bring up a academic study saying, look, this proves I'm right. And then somebody else would get another academic study saying, no, 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 no this proves I'm right. So everybody's finding academic studies that prove that they're right. Uh, if you look hard enough, if you're good enough at Googling, you can find evidence for anything. And so, Evidence alone is not sufficient to refute things anymore, I don't think. Um, not unless the evidence is overwhelming. If the evidence is overwhelming, for instance, you know, the, the existence of gravity, nobody can really dispute that because the evidence is overwhelming. Uh, but for anything where it's not clear cut, you can't just use evidence anymore. And so I think really the, the most powerful uh, defense against lies is 
essentially to make them a meme, to basically make uh, lies. Think of think of the Nigerian scammer um, emails. They're a meme now, you know, they're hilarious. The, 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 you know, if you think of somebody in, in Nigeria like, who's a prince, you know, who's basically uh, telling you that he's going to, he wants to come to your country and put a million dollars in your bank account. All he needs is your bank details. You know, it's, it's a hilarious meme that people use now. But 20 years ago, this was a real scam. This was something that actually fooled people. And people didn't really, you know, because it was new to them, people had no idea about it. They just, they would receive this email saying it was from a Nigerian prince that he wanted to deposit a million dollars into your bank. You know, he just needed your bank details. And people would, you know, they think, wow, you know, I'm going to be rich. Because at that time, these kinds of scams were completely new and people had no idea about them. But after a while, so many people got these emails that everybody was talking about them. And eventually they became a meme because it was just like, you know, so many people had heard about it that it just kind of like just became something that everybody knew and everybody was like watchful for it. And I think the same thing could happen with the kinds of scams we're seeing now, like, do, you know, these you know new that, AI that, scams. That that morphed into a Nigerian astronaut? Did it? <laughs> so <laughs> well, that yeah, scam like yeah. continued going on, but just in different versions. And so yeah. uh, uh, at one point, uh, people get an email. I'm, you know, Dr. Bakari Tunde, the cousin of Nigerian astronaut, Air Force major, uh, Bacha Tunde, the first African in space. And it goes through... Uh, and it's like he was stranded in space in 1990 when the Soviet Union was dissolved um, and became this, there's like this whole story uh, with all these details. It's basically just the Nigerian prince scam, uh, but updated. More elaborate. People yeah. And, yeah. So that's a perfect illustration yeah. of the the way in which this is an asymmetric conflict, right? Because it is trivially cheap to iterate the fundamental lie of the Nigerian scammer. Okay, he's not a prince anymore. He's an astronaut. And if you were to attempt to refute that on a rational evidentiary basis, you would have to be trying to keep up with every iteration of bullshit, right? Which is prohibitively expensive. You, it's a Tom and Jerry thing. You know, it's right. like, I wrote a piece well, the, about... The thing, sorry, carry on. What you're no, no, say. go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, the good thing is you, you don't need to be immunized against every single individual right. uh, iteration. You know, as long as you know that there's a scam in which somebody's pretending that they're a certain person who wants to deposit this kind of money into your bank account, you're immunized against all of them. So, um, you know, it's 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 good enough, I think, just to turn the basic form into the meme. You know, right. this is, I think, how people become uh, essentially immune to scams is that they they learn from the scamming of others or even from themselves. Uh, if you're just taught about a scam, if you're just taught, well, this is a scam, it's not really a lesson that's going to stick in your memory very often. But if you actually know people who have been scammed or if, you, if you've if you been scammed by yourself, that's even more powerful, um, then you will remember that lesson and you'll be much more watchful against all other instances or even iterations of that scam. And so I think we just, we don't need to sort of immunize uh, people against every kind of misinformation we just need to immunize them against well all, the only lesson we need to sort of we need people to know is that they can't trust what they see online because if you could just teach them that one thing then they have a measure of immunity against all scams because they'll think before they react and and so but, i think that's really where the key is and this is what i think the, the sort of the counter disinformation complex misses is that it's actually trivially easy to 
give people a, a very powerful and very cost effective uh, method of uh, immunity against misinformation, which is just to teach them that they can't trust what they see. And the best way to teach people uh, that is to allow them to make mistakes, allow them allow them to have their dreams shattered, to be disillusioned. You know, when they when they see things and then they realize that things are not as they seem, that's the most powerful lesson. That's the most powerful guard, I think, against uh, any form of misinformation. Just this idea that you can't trust what you see. Yeah, I mean, there are two points here. The first is that, of course, the counter disinformation has no interest at all in doing what you're describing because it would almost immediately <clears throat> demonstrate that they're unnecessary. And their interest above all is in maintaining the illusion that it's only through their monopoly on power and regulatory mechanisms that the rest of us are safe. So if they were, you know, if they, they had an interest in truth and in, in a sort of broad sense, yeah, they would do what you're suggesting and allow people to make mistakes. But that's not at all what in terms of like the I'm not talking about what individuals within that complex believe, but the institution itself believes above all in maintaining its own power and maintaining its own mandate. And so it's never going to do that. Um, the, the point I was making about the, the point I was making about the iteration, I, I, we're making the same point. I'm, I'm agreeing. I just, I think that with the Nigerian prince, like the thing that delivers the vaccination or the, the dose that inoculates you, right, is not the rational evidence-based refutation. I never learned anything. It's not like I learned, ah, well, it is unlikely that this is actually a Nigerian prince because, in fact, or for the astronaut, it's not, it's not like you don't need knowledge about the Nigerian space program. No, it's that it's that it becomes a meme, it becomes a trope, and the entire set of iterative variations is like yeah. instantaneously delegitimized, and um, and that seems to me, I mean, for us as writers, this is good, right? It's like <laughs> rhetoric. Rhetoric is important, right? Yeah. It's the statisticians had their day. Yeah. I see these, I mean, I don't want to name names, but if you push me, I'll be happy to name names. But I see some of these like economist brain people talking online and I just think you're you you are a different category of human than I am. I am. Absolutely. All of the classic descriptions of a, a racist, like a, you know, real hardcore 19th century racist, I believe describe me as applies to the race of economists. Like, I think that they are a different and, you know, lesser kind of person. I, I should say, let me, let me, let me, uh, <laughs> let me modify that a bit. Economists who apply their economist brain thinking to, social phenomena and human phenomena, like whatever, if you want to talk about marginal interest rates, I won't be racist against you as an economist, but these economists who talk about social phenomena, but can only see it through actuary tables. And I just, um, or first principles, right? We should probably move on to yeah, yeah, yeah. Philip K. Dick. So I have a lot to say about this, but so, okay. So this story um, had you never read this I, before? I had never read before, and How I consider myself passed on this. It's so so it's it's not in the anthology. Look, I haven't read that much. The the Phil Dick short 
fiction that I've read is comes from two places. There's an anthology called a big thick anthology. I think it's called we can build you, which is the title Mm -hmm. of one of his stories. I think that's also the title of the anthology. And then I have like a huge stack of mimeographed science fiction magazines, mimeographed like zines and sci-fi magazines that I bought over the years um, and there are probably a few dozen PKD stories spread through those. And maybe if I really looked through it, maybe this story is in one of those and I just missed it. But I'm a, I'm a like Philip K. Dick completist. I've even read some of his really horrible social realist um, novels that are not good. And I had never read this and it's an incredible Incredible story. So, Phil, how did you come across this, and and where do you want to start? Well, I'm just an educated person living in the <laughs> 21st century. I'm not, you know, I don't have my head under, you know, under a rock. I, uh, I don't know. You just this is just one of those stories that you read if you want any kind of self respect or dignity. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. I think I actually, I, I think I read this when I was like in. I think I read this when I was in training to be a public affairs officer. Yes. No, I was at Dinfos, the defense information school. And I had a book of Philip K. Dick short stories. And I read this as I'm like learning how to communicate to the public as a public affairs officer. So uh, anyway. Yeah. And listen, it's a difficult story to quickly summarize, but let us say that it has a, you know, it's Phil, Phil Dick at his more Lovecraftian, which is not the mode that he is moving towards. It has elements of the Gnostic Philip K. Dick, which, you know, is the through line and which will become much more pronounced in the in the 70s when it will really like the Vallis decade. Um, So it's the the. It has both the Lovecraftian element, which I think is sort of receding. Some man in the high castle. Yeah. Yeah. Strong dose of the Gnostic element. And then the man in the high castle, which is the um, counter authoritarian. Let me me give a quick dystopian Phil Dick. Let me give a a quick overview. There's a guy, Mr. Chen. It's set in Hanoi, though. That doesn't really factor into the story. um, Who is a functionary in the communist party. Chinese Communist Party has taken over the world, right? And he meets a street peddler who he has to buy something from because the street peddler is a war veteran. And he gives him this this snuff, which he says will allow him to watch the official like propaganda speeches and relax more while he does it. Uh, the guy goes to his job. They hand him two papers And they're basically like, you need to decide one of these is written by somebody who is a true believer in the party ideology. And one of them is a sort of very subtle satire. And you have to figure out, you know, which is which, right? And if you get the right answer, if you figure out who's actually satirizing party ideology, uh, you'll advance. Uh, He goes home, he sits in front of the TV and watches the speech of like the great leader, which everybody has to do. He takes this, this snuff that he was given from the street peddler. And then all of a sudden, instead of seeing the leader giving a speech, he's seeing this horrible mechanical construct, right? Uh, he calls the police. He gives them the snuff. They analyze it. Uh, he assumes that it's a hallucinogen, and that's why he's seeing this horrible monstrosity on his television. But in fact, 
the thing turns out to be an anti-hallucinogen. And this woman comes and she tells him that she's part of this group that's trying to figure out what's really going on. The uh, Everybody's on hallucinogens, but if you they, they give you anti-hallucinogens, when you watch the, the speeches of the leader, you see something different. But what's weird is that everybody, like, they're, there's not, like, you take the anti-hallucinogen and then you see reality. People see different things. Like, some people see this aquatic, horrible aquatic monster. People who take the anti-hallucinogen and see through the mass hallucinations and mass hypnosis, th- all those people end up seeing different versions of the underlying reality. Yeah. Like, this is the problem with trying to describe this kind of Philip K. Dick story. You just you disappear into a recursive void of right. what's real, what's hallucination. Right. Some of them who take the stelazine, it was the stelazine you got, Mr. Chan, see one apparition, some another. But distinct categories have emerged. There's not an infinite variety. Some see what you saw. We call it the clanker. Some the aquatic horror. That's the gulper. Then there's the bird and the climbing tube. And she broke off. But other reactions tell you very little. Tell us very little. Now that this has happened to you, we would like you to join our gathering. Join your particular group. Those who see what you see. Group red. We want to know what it really is. And she gestured with tapered wax smooth fingers. It can't be all those manifestations. Her tone was poignant. Naively so. He felt his caution relax a, a trifle. He said, what do you see? You in particular. I'm part of Group Yellow. I see a storm, a whining, vicious whirlwind. Um, And what is confusing to her is she thinks the hallucination is what should differ from person to person. And the reality should be ubiquitous, but it's turned around, right? The hallucination is all the same. And the reality is what sparks these different reactions, which is I love. I love that. Um, That's the sort of what will become the essential gnostic theme you know because soon after he writes this this is 67 this is published i think 1967 and it's in like 1972 when philip k dick is when his son is sick is visited by a woman who is a representative of valentinian gnostics early christians and um then um god speaks to him in the form of a information rich pink laser beam that communicates to him knowledge about the underlying reality of the universe and also about his son's medical condition, which saves his son's life. And then he spends the rest of his days trying to figure out whether that was a hallucination (laughs) or reality is a hallucination or he himself is a hallucination. And this is the, this is the thing that he will spend the rest of, you know, his greatest novels are about this, yeah. uh, the three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. This is related. God himself is an auto hallucination. Right. It's not, it, so it's, this is not exactly what, what Dick is talking about, but I think it's related to this discussion of the digital space, right? Because there, there's a bit that I love from Rowan Williams where he's talking about the nature of reality and poetry and metaphor. And he says to try to be truthful is to try and find a way of speaking that does maximal justice to the diversity and plurality of a situation so that truthful speech is inevitably committed to metaphor in order to represent what we could call the overflow of significance that we confront, right? That actually trying to speak truthfully of reality is not about sort of pinning down one 
verifiable truth, but rather there's a sort of maximal complexity to actual reality. And a lot of the sort of hurting behavior of online online discourse, particularly when, when it's related to, to politics, is about zeroing in on a definitive interpretation, right? Um, whereas the bare facts of, of the matter approached honestly and openly would spark a, a sort of range of reactions and, and, and a variety of very different responses from different people. Yeah, because the bare facts of the matter are that we don't know anything. Um, <laughs> we might be a hallucination. Reality might be a hallucination. We are struggling at all times in ways that we are scarcely conscious of with that uh, very fundamental instability of in, in the surface of reality. And it's, I think that this is a, I was thrilled to read this story. Um, you know, I think Dick's novels are better than his short stories, but this is a sort of novelistic short yeah. story. So it really works, but I, this is a perfect illustration. And without giving away the ending, basically when he discovers the truth, which may, of course, the, the protagonist, which may, of course, not be the truth, may itself be only another hallucination. But what he discovers, what appears to be the truth, it's so unimaginably bleak and horrific that he can only shrink away from it and retreat into whatever comforts are, are available. But again, that may itself be a kind of hallucination. Who knows? But the the information regulators are, they want to be like, this is a story about a demi urge, right? And this is the sort of underlying premise of Gnosticism is that the world as we perceive it is a false reality and different Gnostic, you know, Gnosticism is a broad category. Gnosis is just knowledge in Greek. So there are you know, there's Islamic Gnosticism, Sufi Gnostics, there are Valentinian Christian Gnostics, there are Jewish Gnostics, but it, they share the belief that the reality that we perceive is in some way false, an irreality, and that beyond that is a real reality. And some of them believe that the false reality in which we are imprisoned was created by a demiurge, a, a lesser god who may in certain traditions believe himself to be the true god, but is in fact the false god. And so it it's Gnosticism, and, and Bloom writes about this in the American mm -hmm. Religion, which is his book about Gnosticism as the essential sort of religious tradition of America. Gnosticism is a religion of information. Mm -hmm. That's yep. what Gnosticism is, not of experience, not of ritual, not of covenant, not of obligation. Gnosticism is a religion of information and the, the, that which holds that the only way to penetrate the false reality in which we are imprisoned is through contact with a hidden, you know, occult transcendent form of information that will decode the irreality. Uh, and maybe that comes in the form of, of shards of light or, you know, different, mm -hmm. different traditions have their own thing, but the information regulators are like, no, no, no. You know, we'll, we'll, 
step in. And in a practical sense, yes, you do need to, on a, on a very local level, yes, you do need to order the reality around yourself in a way that shelves for a moment the questions raised by Gnosticism so that you aren't drowning under information. Forget about false information. You know, even true information can be overwhelming and like lethal and too high a dose. Um, but yeah, that's a local practical thing. Yeah. I, I think that what, one thing I really liked about the story was that there's one hallucination, but many realities. And I think this really speaks to what we've been talking about today, which is the whole thing about vanishing points. You could kind of draw an, an analogy between the hallucination and a vanishing point. It's something that keeps everybody unified and prevents everybody from fracturing it into their own realities, you know. So, like, what we see now is that we actually do, in a sense, have multiple realities because everybody has different facts. Everybody has, everything is mediated by different cultures or subcultures. So everybody has their own reality online, all these different communities. And the one thing that we lack is this kind of overarching hallucination, um, this thing that's sort of everybody has in common and that sort of unifies society and sort of steers society towards one single common goal. So I think that it's a perfect sort of story to really describe that kind of meaning crisis that we're suffering from at the moment. Um, it would be interesting to, to get your guys' takes on that. Actually. Yeah, I think it's also, if you take that a step further, it's like it also speaks to the futility at the moment, maybe in the future conditions will change, but the futility of trying to, when you try and resurrect that shattered consensus of meaning, you don't get ultimate truth. You get a hideous evil demiurge that r rules over you and makes you like uh, swear stupid obsequious party loyalties that's what you get and so you are better off accepting that things might have to be smaller more self-contained that you know like yeah I, I had, um, I forget exactly what I said but I, I tweeted something a while ago where I think I said uh, that the, the, what is it like the sages of the moment look at the tower of Babel and they see an engineering problem, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it's like, okay, maybe we're just better off without the tower of Babel. Maybe, you know, maybe in a, in a way that it is a sort of reversion to what was the historical norm, um, global communities with single top down systems of, belief are not not only not recoverable but not ideal and if we accept this fragmentation of realities and we accept that the only way to restore things it's not to say like the 20th century top-down system worked quite well for a while right this is not to say that one is ultimately better than the other but the the medium that made that possible has been shattered and is not recoverable. And therefore, rather than forcing ourselves into these inhuman contortions to recover it, we're better off working at smaller scales. You know, so I, I was recently in Prague um, in like the reading like the STB files on my, my family was uh, my grandfather was an American diplomat in Prague in 76 to 78. And so I was going through the the secret police files on my family and on, on some of the other things. And 
it was interesting rereading this story after having that because one of the documents that I found was the secret police's analysis of the American bicentennial and and the events that the American embassy is going to put on and the propaganda purpose of them and what they're, what they're trying to do. And, um, in the, in the Philip K. Dick story, those two papers that the guys got to decide between the one that is the subversive paper is the one that is too enthusiastic about the ideological slogans, right? Like that's, that's the tell that the person doesn't really believe in it. It's not rote and mindless recitation of the official slogan, right? That's, that's the true believer. And in the STV files on, on this thing, the analysis of what the U.S. Embassy was trying to do is totally correct, right? And it's extensive. And it's like the U.S. will try to present itself as a unique example of democracy, guardian of, of human rights and freedom, high standards of living, and promoter of the only just and peaceful and humane foreign policy, right? I'm like, correct. And it's like, Americans study the celebrations of the birth of Lenin and this, and they're going to, you know, and all throughout there's this sort of very sophisticated thoughtful analysis of the different things the United States is going to do to use, you know, the bicentennial, uh, to, um, present the United States as a tolerant and generous society open to all nations of the world. And then at like very briefly at the end of the report, you get the ideological spin from the plans and content of the organizers. We can see that the celebration of the declaration of independence only serves as a tool for a broad ideological attack focused on the idealization of imperialism and the weakening, weakening of the achievements of the peace offensive of the socialist society. And that's it. It's like one sentence, <laughs> that's totally, incredible. totally wrote uh, like, like, any undergraduate now, right. Could pen a much more savage attack on 1776 and, and, and the falsity of the American, like he's not interested in any of that. Right. And if you read the document and you cut out that line, it actually makes the United States sound pretty good. <laughs> you know? Like, and then just at the very end, they're like, oh yeah, but here's the, here's the line. And, you know, we move along and, um, it, you know, it, it was, it was very funny. And yet that's in a way the, the way, uh, in the faith of our father's story that you would know if they were really subversive would be if they were just like really leaning into the ideological attack, because that subtly just makes it absurd. The other thing about the story is that there's nothing to believe in, right? Like, um, it's a dark story, yeah. It's a dark story. Nobody believes in it. The guy who they pick, the protagonist who they pick, whose test, his great loyalty test is to choose between these two papers and determine which one is authentic party loyalty and which one is um, satire. He is himself you know, thinking, he's like contemptuous of the party as he's thinking, he's like bored of this. He just wants to advance in his career. Um, the, the reason that he does like go through with it and try and figure out what the truth behind the leader is, is he was curious, a bad emotion he knew. Curiosity was, especially in party activities, often a terminal state career-wise. Yeah, yeah, it's good. This is like, it's a great dick story. Um in in a number of ways and one of them is it's like really funny which um you know at a number of points and then it does the characteristic phil dick thing where it's got all the it's got pharmaceuticals 
It's got a manipulation of like the basic field of reality. And then it's got bureaucratic inanity. And it's the way that those things interact that's so characteristic of his best work. Like there's the really sort of banal bureaucratic stuff. There are the drugs you take to deal with the um, the, the suffering of reality. And then there's the way in which that suffering is not even real. Like yeah. Beneath it all, um, you, you just don't know. But yeah, it's very funny. Um, it's funny though. I, you know, I wonder what you guys thought of this, but it struck me as I was reading it. It's like very pre-digital, not only in its treatment of um, technologies. It, yeah. in, in Dick's stories, this is true across almost all of his work. It's always about tapes. Yeah. Like the, the great holograph of the universe is like, it's a tape playing that holograph of the universe. You know, it's yeah. all like the, the, the manipulation is like a a it's all analog that reality manipulation but the other thing that struck me about it is that it's very concentrated on the individual and the the individual's ego within this larger thing in a way you know the individual is isolated yearning for contact and it's at this point that our recording equipment stopped working Perhaps the algorithms had decided they'd had enough of humans talking. Anyway, thank you for listening. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius.